Last time on Uncommon Law, we examined how the law school pipeline is handling the push for greater diversity in law firms. We have become obsessed with rankings as shorthand for merit. And that is a very seductive, easy thing to do. Are big law firms recruiting from too few schools? And do students of color feel like they belong? You know, you go there and subconsciously, you know, you think you may not be as worthy to be there as your, as your, your white peers. It's almost like the classroom experience is gaslighting us because you're taught to think like the law is so neutral. And have the programs that have been in place for decades been enough? And what are the implications for students of color going forward? I'm tired of the excuses. You know, the idea, you know, they're you know, not qualified and we're not going to, you know, we don't want to lower our standards. I will hang up on you if you say to me, you don't want to lower your standards. You're listening to Uncommon Law, the Bloomberg Industry Group's narrative podcast about big ideas in the world of public policy and the law. And with us again to help us dive in is Bloomberg Law's executive editor for strategic initiatives, Lisa Hellam. Hi, Adam. It's great to be back. Nice to talk with you again. So this is our fourth episode in this five-part series. So far, we've looked at the recent history of big law and diversity. We've talked about what they are or in some cases aren't doing differently now. And we've also looked at the pipeline in law schools. So what do we have on the docket for today? Today, we're going to take a look at some of the unique experiences of a group that make up just a tiny percentage of the population of law firm partners across the country, and that's Black women. Where do Black women fall within the larger push to diversify the legal industry? How do they grapple with challenges that include both gender-based and race-based bias? And finally, what can we learn from those who have successfully cleared all the hurdles and have ascended to top firm leadership roles? That's something I've been really wondering about, too, because, I mean, for several decades now, the American Bar Association has been reporting that women account for about 45 to 50 percent of associate classes in big law, yet still only about 20 percent of equity partners. And actually, the statistics for black women lawyers are much worse. According to the National Association for Law Placements 2019 report on diversity in law firms, Black women account for just three quarters of a percent of all partners. That includes both equity and non-equity partners. And that stat is actually up slightly from a year before. As one prominent partner said to me early last year, in terms of firm leadership, that means black women are basically statistically insignificant. Ugh, I don't really know what to say besides that's really bad and unfortunate. Despite the numbers, I don't think anyone could describe this first person as insignificant. So I'm Grace Spates. I'm a partner at Morgan Lewis resident in our DC office, and I'm the global leader of our labor and employment practice. For listeners who aren't aware, Morgan Lewis is more than 2,000 lawyers, and the firm was ranked number seven on the American Lawyers 2020 AmLaw 100 list, which ranks firms by revenue. Over her 36-year career at the firm, Spates has made a name for herself defending companies accused of treating employees unfairly based on their race, gender, or age, and leading key investigations in the Me Too era. She's also the first African-American woman to be named partner at the firm. Because of my background and my experiences, especially um, as a Black woman and, and this whole racial justice movement, 
I can understand things and see things that my clients don't see. All right? You know, how could they believe they were discriminated against? Well, let me tell you why. Okay? And they don't see that because they haven't walked in the shoes of a black person who may be sitting in corporate America. A native of Philadelphia and the daughter of a single mother, Spades grew up watching her mother work hard in a drapery factory. She says she frequently draws on that lived experience to help her clients create a workplace culture where people of color, women, and those who are both feel valued. And to fully understand her trajectory, back in 1984 when Spates was hired, Morgan Lewis looked much different than it does today. At that time, I was the only black woman at the firm. We had one black male associate who joined the same day that I joined. All right, just the two of us, that whole firm, not just Philadelphia office, the whole firm. Here I am, the only black woman sitting up in this big law firm. Nobody looking like me, all right? Um, there were very few women partners at that time. You know, I was wearing a little bow tie. <laughs> the white shirt, Brooks Brother woman's shirt buttoned up with a little bow tie and suit. And boy, that was not me, okay? <laughs> but I did it because looking around, that's how people dress. Spates overcame her doubts, adjusted to the culture, worked hard, and did well at Morgan Lewis. In addition to becoming the firm's first African-American woman partner, she led the firm's D.C. office from 2008 to 2016. She currently heads the Labor and Employment Group, managing more than 300 lawyers in the key practice area across the firm. Frankly, I think being a Black woman with the background that I had sort of gave me the natural skills for doing that because, you know, here I am, you know, mediating a squabble over the size of an office when the little townhouse that I grew up in South Philadelphia could probably fit in one of those offices. What are you talking about? What are you doing? So that sort of um, grounded background, I think, helped me to help partners and others see that things that they were making as issues was not an issue. Part of what's most compelling about Grace's story is the fact that it's a first in many respects. In addition to being the firm's first black woman partner, she's also been able to draw a perspective from being a first-generation lawyer. That's the value in diversity. She's seeing the world in a different way, and then she's applying that perspective in a way that ultimately benefits everyone. While Spates is a good example of a Black woman who has been able to clear the major barriers to firm leadership, she's also very open about some of her frustrations with how Black female lawyers are often treated. A seasoned trial lawyer, Grace spoke with a Bloomberg Law reporter last fall about being mistaken for a court reporter and even a defendant. In fact, according to a 2020 ABA report about female attorneys in private practice, 82% of female respondents reported being mistaken for non-lawyer employees on account of their gender, compared to 0% of men. I don't consider it to be a microaggression. I just see it as an aggression, right? And it's racialized and it's gendered, and it speaks directly to the intersectional identities of Black women, particularly how race and gender overlap. 
Sadale Malaku is a sociologist and researcher at City University in New York. She wrote an entire book about the relationship between race and gender and how it impacts advancement for women of color. It's called You Don't Look Like a Lawyer. And she says the not-so-subtle message delivered to attorneys of color, and black women in particular, is that it's their job to assimilate to firm culture and to make their white colleagues more comfortable. To speak to the experiences of black women, it's important to consider how they're often forced to engage in various forms of labor in order to be seen, in order to be recognized, and it's oftentimes um, uncompensated. And in the context of the legal profession, Walaku says women, and Black women in particular, are pressured to take on various forms of extra financial, cognitive, and relational labor in order to be accepted into white institutional spaces. She refers to this as the inclusion tax. So an example of what this looks like would be the amount of um, uh, discourse surrounding you know, uh, black women's hair, right? So appearance, for example, is a critical point where we can see how the inclusion tax taking place uh, in various ways. Not just the emotional labor of having to engage in these conversations or the cognitive labor of having to preempt having these conversations, right? If you're changing appearance in any way, but also the financial cost having to maintain a particular visible visual representation at all times, being uber professional in spaces because you don't want to be mistaken for the non-attorney. Malaku says this you don't look like a lawyer mentality isn't specific to just the legal industry. And she highlights the fact that decades of racial and gender discrimination are extremely hard to erase, even at firms that have taken steps to become more inclusive. I've really struggled as a lawyer with bringing my authentic self to work and having to change how I appear or how I interact in order to make someone else comfortable with me being in the room. Krista Brown Sanford is a partner and the deputy department chair of intellectual property at Baker Botts, a multinational law firm based in Houston, Texas. When I spoke to her a few months back, she told me that there have been times when even she felt the pressure to hold back certain aspects of her authentic self. It could be a simple thing like my hair. You're seeing me and I have my braids in my hair. Adam, I did not get my braids in my hair as a lawyer until just last year in 2019, right before my 40th birthday, because I was told as a law student that I should not wear braids when going into a big law firm. It would not send the right message. I would not be perceived in the right way. And I held on to that for almost 18, 19 years. The issue of hair is something that actually comes up a lot in discussions among Black female lawyers at law firms and beyond. But we know that that issue barely scratches the surface when it comes to issues of race and gender in the legal profession. Going through this journey and having three kids, right, and taking maternity leaves and having to answer questions about, you know, are you coming back to work? Are you, you know, or is this something that you can do? It, it, so it's, it's the struggle of having to always overachieve just to be considered baseline. And that's where I struggled, but I will say I am very happy now that I don't feel like I need to mask who I am. 
um, in the work environment and you know, being here and working virtually, I think has also helped in that because I can't hide who I am. You're gonna sometimes hear my three kids in the background and I can't hide the fact that I'm a mom, <laughs> you know? So that. I do think that there are unique issues that can be experienced by Black women attorneys in particular. Rakia Pippins is a partner in Arnold and Porter's Washington, D.C. office. Beyond just the challenges of managing both a career and family, she says there's also other issues that are layered on top of the everyday experience Black women face in big law. I think that there are larger issues when you think about business development and engagement outside of your firm specifically, um, in which there are unique issues that being a Black woman, I think, can can employ. And especially if you are a Black woman who's not married and doesn't have children, in which so much bonding and experience and stuff that people use to connect with each other are based on those things. And so you're balancing that and a desire not to be sexualized while developing your practice. According to a 2019 survey of more than 1,200 senior attorneys by the American Bar Association, half of female lawyers report experiencing sexual harassment at work, and 16% say they've lost work opportunities as a result of rebuffing sexual advances. In addition to that, the ABA also reports that women of color have the highest rate of attrition from law firms as they continue to face firm cultures where their contributions may not be sufficiently recognized or rewarded. Again, Krista Brown-Sanford. What I've noticed is if there is not a um, more intentional system for work allocation, there is a lot of opportunity for associates to fall through the cracks. And when associates do not have the opportunity to do work and establish their rapport with partners, then they're not going to meet hours. They're going to get stagnant. They're going to get on a list and then they're going to be not happy at the firm. And it's this cycle. Right. And then if they're not happy at the firm, they leave, they go in house. We don't have a pipeline to make partners. And then there's no one in the room when we need to have conversations about, et cetera. In addition to pre-existing challenges Black women face on the path toward leadership, others point out that ongoing COVID-19 and racial crises have also exposed other disadvantages that fall unequally onto the shoulders of women, including Black women. And it is leading to alarming rates of um, depression, of um, overwhelm that's uh, having physical impacts. It's a, it's a matter of, I'm going to do the best I can, but I'm absolutely working in crisis. Maya Hazel is the Global Head of Diversity and Inclusion at White & Case, a law firm based in New York City. And what does this look like for Black women in particular when you have a disproportionate rate of death and job loss in uh, the Black community where you have Black women who are often primary breadwinners in their families, and they are responsible for supporting their larger family structures. Without necessarily having the support of a spouse who also earns a high salary, Hazel says that Black women may not have the same ability as their peers to hire extra help for young children or to support aging parents. Hazel says she does feel that most firms are moving in the right direction with finding better ways to hire and retain Black women. But when I asked her about what still keeps her up at night, she said it's those people who still don't buy into why diversity is actually good for their firm. There are certain segments of our society, particularly uh, white males, 
or even white employees who see diversity and inclusion initiatives as a threat. Um, there is a view that there is a target on your back if you are straight and white and male and opportunities are going to be taken away from you to be kind of redistributed unfairly for some reason uh, to those who are in the minority. You know, if I'm coming to the table feeling I'm somehow losing out versus I'm sharing power, I'm collaborating, I'm getting different voices at the table to break up groupthink. And so we're actually not getting the best results. In addition to the people who are saying, I'm not going to give you work unless you're diverse or I'm going to take work away. Right. So there's a clear business imperative. So those who still fight it is because they they feel that they are uh losing. Despite the violence and protests earlier this year, as well as the cloud of uncertainty surrounding the pandemic and its downstream impacts on the legal industry, 2021 may have produced one silver lining. Effective January 1st, Norton Rose Fulbright, the third largest firm in the U.S., according to the National Law Journal, named Shauna Clark chair of its global and U.S. operations. The news marked the first time an African-American woman has been selected to chair an AmLaw 100 firm. From my perspective, it's less important to be first, but how can we find and create opportunities so that you're not the only one? That, you, you know, I'm working towards a day when a Black woman taking over any role uh, in a law firm or CEO in a corporation, it's just old news. Lisa, in your talk with Shauna Clark, what really stood out for me was just how many challenges and obstacles this woman has had to overcome. Yes, it just underscores how hard it is to go from statistically insignificant to, in Clark's case, really making history. I was born and raised in Plaquemine, Louisiana, a small town just south of Baton Rouge. And my mother was a single parent. I have one brother, and it was... To say we grew up poor would be an understatement. Clark put herself through Louisiana State University by taking a number of jobs, including working as a custodian on an oil refinery, an experience she said taught her a lot about the value of honest work. That experience, uh, having to, to take on the jobs no one else wanted, while at the same time being completely invisible, Uh, I was in that particular position. I could have been a piece of furniture. The executives, the even the the administrative assistants, it, it didn't matter. I was the cleaning girl with no name, no face. In that position, I had to clean the quote big house and it literally, I mean, this is Louisiana, right? So it was this refinery was built on a plantation. And around Christmas time, all of the executives and their wives would come to this big party. But someone had to clean the big house. And one year I cleaned the big house and I went about my business. And then the next year, their administrative assistant reached out to the crew leader to say, well, I want that little girl who cleaned last year because she did such a great job. And, you know, people would think that why would you be proud to be asked to clean the big house? But I but it it demonstrated that no matter what you do and no matter what the role, all work is profitable. 
you know, all work is profitable if you do it for the right reasons and you do a good job. When she was later hired by Fulbright and Jaworski in 1994, now Norton Rose Fulbright, Clark said that she was one of only two black lawyers in her class and the only black woman. She had to overcome feelings of isolation and figure out how to navigate the course. I started with two white men and one was a big football player and we have a partner who was a football player. And so they just, they had an instant bromance, instant. And then the other one became very close with the leading senior associate who worked closely with the head of the group. And so I, I just felt like I was the odd man out. I didn't have anyone, you know, day to day. And so that the first year was very difficult. Being a junior associate who also happens to be black, Clark said she knew she'd have to take it upon herself to build relationships at the firm, even if her colleagues weren't willing to do the same for her. Something else you do as a black woman to be successful, you go out of your way to make white men comfortable with you. Among the other adaptation techniques she learned, Clark says she learned to speak in ESPN soundbites, as well as remembering the names of people's kids or what their spouses did for work, anything to forge a relationship. And while she was doing that, she was also becoming very successful in her work. So successful, in fact, that before long, she was made partner in charge of the firm's Houston office, and then in 2013, head of the entire employment and labor division. I'm at the table for a variety of reasons. And, and yes, I am going to bring a different perspective. And I do that. I use my voice. And it doesn't really matter who it is. Respectfully, I share my Black woman experience. But more than that, I share a poor Black woman's experience. When we're talking about making decisions about staff, our junior lawyers, our compensation, that perspective, that voice has to be in the room. So, you know, because my experience is very different from a lot of Black women, right? And I recognize that and I'm grateful for it. And I have a responsibility to remember all of the people who were just like me. Despite being a relative outlier at the firm in terms of her lived experiences, Clark says she never experienced a situation where she felt like someone was demeaning or dismissive to her because of her race or gender. Now, that's not to say that everybody likes me or that I like everybody, but I don't think there's any partner with a legitimate reason not to respect me. As heartening as Shauna Clark's story is, others say that women will continue to vote with their feet and leave big law until firms become willing to reconsider their single-minded focus on billable hour quotas and insane work schedules, which force women to make impossible choices between work and family that many men don't have to make. According to that same ABA report on women in the profession, the second most common reason female attorneys gave for leaving big law was stress. But the top reason respondents cited for leaving was childcare responsibilities. Because it is a very kind of all-consuming job and, you know, being a parent is also all-consuming. And so trying to balance those two things, which is really kind of impossible. April Miller-Boyce is an executive vice president and general counsel at Eaton Corporation, a Fortune 500 company making electrical parts and truck transmissions. For many years, she says firms took a one-size-fits-all approach to diversity and inclusion which she says hasn't really worked because it lumps all non-white males into the same diversity bucket. I think some of it is because 
at some point diversity came to mean white women, the promotion of white women. When people started talking about how do we increase diversity in law firms, um, people really focused on you know promoting white women and, and nothing wrong with that um, at all. But we can't do that at the and exclude other people from that diversity equation. You know, lawyers of color. Before moving in house, Boyce spent almost 15 years in big law, including 11 years with Thompson Hine. For the most part, she feels that big law's problems with retaining minority attorneys and black women specifically are not for lack of good intentions, but that the efforts that have been in place for most of her 25 year career just aren't moving the needle. And that needs to change. It's so easy to say, well, we've done these things, we've recruited people, and they get recruited away for other great opportunities, right? But everyone gets recruited away for other great opportunities. Um, if we you know, recruit 10 people and all 10 get recruited away and all 10 leave, I think it says something that we have to evaluate. Why don't people see opportunities at the firm as, as significant? In addition to her role at Eaton, Boyce is also co-founder of the Black General Counsel 2025 initiative. Started in 2017, Boyce says the main goal is to have 10% of Fortune 1000 companies have Black GCs by 2025. And one of the reasons we started that is because in addition to increasing the number of Black GCs, we also really want to use that role and that position and that power of being a general counsel to make buying decisions with law firms, right? If you have black GCs who are the clients saying, I want to see more black lawyers on my matter, I must see more black lawyers on my matters, that will drive um, activity and decision-making at the firms. As of 2017, there were 38 African-American general counsel and Fortune 1000 companies, representing just under 4% of the overall number. That number recently increased to 50, cracking 5%, a topic Bloomberg Law covered in our Black General Counsel project. I want to get to a day when when I walk into a room as an African-American executive and an African-American general counsel that people will assume that people who look like me are in the roles that I'm in and that I'm not the exception and I'm not the only one. And I think for so many Black women, everywhere they go in these circles, they are the only one or one of a very few. And so they're constantly trying to combat this vision of what does a successful lawyer or a successful, I'm using air quotes, um, executive look like and that it just looks like me, right? I want to bring my authentic self to work and bringing that authentic self, people look at me and assume like, oh, she's probably in a position of power. And that's where we're going to leave the discussion for today. A special thank you, as always, to my co-host, Bloomberg Law's Executive Editor for Strategic Initiatives, Lisa Hellum. You're welcome, Adam. Thanks. Talk to you soon. Coming up in our fifth and final episode, Black Judges Matter. Why legal scholars say it's important to maintain a diverse bench and why the goal has been drastically set back by the outgoing Trump administration. Uncommon Law was produced by myself, Adam Allington, along with Lisa Hellum and Marissa Horn. Josh Block is the executive producer of Bloomberg Industry Group Podcasts. Thanks for listening. Taxes and accounting are complicated, but finding a good tax podcast shouldn't be. I'm Siri Belusu, and I'm Amanda Icone. Listen to Talking Tax. 
the podcast that breaks down all of these issues on a weekly basis. Every Thursday, Talking Tax will explain the latest issues for you, from what Congress is working on to legal rulings to the global digital tax debate. Download and subscribe to Talking Tax wherever you get your podcasts.